The Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host, Sarah Morris. Hello, it's Sarah, the Tudor Travel Guide here. Welcome to the Tudor History and Travel Show. It's just a note to say that if you're hearing this, then you are not currently on our patron programme and will only be hearing the first part of each show. In order to access full episodes of the Tudor History and Travel Show podcast, you will need to become a patron of the show via the show's homepage at thetudortravelshow.podbean.com. There you will find information relating to various different levels of sponsorship with different perks associated with each. But access to all the usual shows of my podcast in their entirety is included in the entry level, which is just $1 a month. We don't run ads on the podcast, so it is made entirely possible by the support of our patrons. So if you enjoy what we're doing here, please consider becoming one. Now then, in a moment, I am going to be taking you on location to West Sussex to visit the ruins of what was once one of the grandest Tudor houses in England. It certainly has a fascinating story and was right at the heart of the Royal Tudor Court. But before then, I have a little bit of housekeeping and it's good news because this month, September, marks the opening of my virtual autumn summit. Yes, this is a yearly summit and is a highlight of the Tudor Travel Guide year. This year, the summit, as I mentioned, I think, in the last podcast, is all about Anne Boleyn. It celebrates not only the 500 years since Anne's first recorded debut appearance at the English court as part of the Chateau Vert at what was then York Palace, but it also happened to coincide with the 10th anniversary of the publication of my novel about Anne Boleyn, Le Temps Viendre. So it seemed a bit of a no-brainer this year for me to dive deep into the world of Anne Boleyn. And in fact, the summit is called 500 Years of Anne Boleyn, It Girl, Icon and Legend. Okay, well, it's an exciting time for me because it's something that I work on all year. And I know that many of you out there will have tuned in to my previous summits uh, about the field of cloth of gold, about Cardinal Wolsey. And last year, we focused on women of the Tudor age in power to peasantry, the art of being a woman in Tudor England. And this year, uh, on the 16th, Friday, the 16th of September, I will be opening booking to this year's summit, which will take place over the last weekend in October. That's the 29th and the 30th of October. I am thrilled 
to be announcing this year's summit, which I believe has the best lineup yet. Now, I will go into that lineup in more detail at the beginning of next month. But for now, simply mark the date in your diary, the 29th and the 30th of October, as the dates over which the virtual summit goes live. Pre recorded sessions are aired on both the Saturday and the Sunday. However, I will stress that you do not need to be able to make the summit live. You may choose to tune in as each video is made live over the course of the weekend. But once you have bought your ticket, you will have the links to all the videos a week or so before the summit goes live. And once I make those videos live on YouTube, you can then tune in and watch them over and over and over again, right the way through until the end of the year. Yes, that is the 31st of December. So yes, I get a lot of questions on that. You do not need to be able to make that specific weekend in order to be able to enjoy this summit to the full. Okay. Well, as I said, Tickets will be opening mid-September. I'm hoping to launch them on the 16th of September. Um, so you may keep an eye out for that. And if you want to be for sure notified about when those tickets go live, then the best thing that you can do is subscribe to my mailing list. And that is via the homepage of my website, which is www.thetudortravelguide.com. Okay, as I said, there'll be a little bit more coming, a little bit more detail coming about the summit in next month's podcast. But for now, I want to turn our attention to the task in hand. So, in fact, very recently, I headed down to West Sussex to see a house, which was, as I mentioned at the top of this programme, once one of the finest Tudor houses in England. It was commissioned and built by Sir William Fitzwilliam, later the first Earl of Southampton. Now, Sir William is an interesting character. He's somebody I looked at in some detail when I was writing Le Ton Viandre, a novel of Anne Boleyn, because he was one of the three men sent by Cromwell stroke Henry to interrogate Anne Boleyn after she had been arrested at Greenwich Palace. Now, if you have seen Holbein's sketch of Sir William, you will see a man with a cold and penetrating gaze, certainly not someone you would want to get on the wrong side of. As I say in my novel, this was a man hewn from the granite of Yorkshire, which was his home county. Early on in his life, William was placed as a child in the schoolroom alongside the young Prince Henry Tudor, just like, for example, Charles Brandon. Of course, he therefore grew up with the king. And once Henry VIII had been crowned, he started to amass positions at court and titles and honours. But he would only really reach the pinnacle of his career in 1537 when he was created the first Earl of Southampton, probably as a part or as a result of and a thanks for his willingness to be part of the destruction of Anne Boleyn and the Boleyn faction. As you will hear from our expert guide today, Paul Ullison, 
the new Earl of Southampton needed a fine country home as befitting his newly elevated status, and he chose Cowdery next to the small town of Midhurst in West Sussex, in which to place his new country seat. Well, I think we've now set the scene. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Cowdery House and our expert guide, Paul Olson. Hello, Paul. Paul, welcome to the Tudor History and Travel Show. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you again. <gasps> well, yeah, it's lovely to be back, um, standing right in front of these glorious ruins. But before we start talking about uh, Cowdery House, which, of course, is what we're here to uh, explore today and its wonderful history, maybe you could just introduce yourself and remind folk who you may be because some people may not have seen that wonderful video that we did on my youtube channel and i would urge you guys who are tuning in that if you didn't see the video of paul talking about the tudor kitchens here at cowdery it is over on my youtube channel just search the tudor travel guide but for those folk who didn't catch that paul tell us about yourself so i've been working within the living history environment for nearly 30 years now and work predominantly in schools self-employed have worked for a local museum for nearly eight nine years and then I also organize events historical events locally and then do a lot of talks and presentations to people history to me is very much a living subject and I think the more that we can promote that the better hence why working with Cowdrey for 15 years has been brilliant and just to say if people want to see you in your various guises particularly you made a rather rather handsome anglo-saxon right there paul and your instagram account they want to follow you on instagram stone maybe? age yes oh, stone age stone age is the one on the instagram definitely. Okay. yeah so you can find me literally tag my name and then you'll find me and what i've done is i've over lockdown i charted making everything from scratch so everything was handmade huge bits of research for me i'd never done things like fletching before i'd never sewn leather before um and never made knives before as in stone age knives so yeah that's all charted on the instagram so have a good look at that and it's uh, and so it's yeah. at paul can you spell Dot, yeah so paul and then olson u double l s o n perfect thank yeah. you so much so well you're not your um ancient britain in front of me today but you are dressed rather handsomely as a Tudor gentleman, rather befitting of our time here at Cowdery today, because of course Cowdery was one of the most spectacular early Tudor houses of its day. So Paul, before we get into exploring the wonderful history of this house, perhaps we could just flag up to those people listening how they might find out more about Cowdery. There is a website and I would urge people to go to the website because that will have details about any events or potentially that you can book an event here at the ruins. Sadly, at the moment, as you can see, that it's not open on a daily basis to visitors. There's still quite a lot of conservation work that needs to be done. However, there are special events that we do throughout the years. There are walks and talks and presentations that we do throughout the years. All of that can be found on the website and there should be an Instagram page up as well. That's great. So, uh, dear listeners, if you are uh, enchanted by our discussion and want to come and see Cowdery for yourself, do make sure that you check out the website for all the latest information. Right, now, let's dive in, Paul. So, y you've already said we're standing right in front of the sort of the gatehouse range of Cowdery House an enormous and beautiful house in its day. Now it stands in ruins and we're going to come into the later to talk about why this house is in ruins. But this wasn't the first house on the site, 
was it? Could you tell us about what was here before this home came into, into being? Cowdray means Hazelwood. So there was a medieval hunting lodge here in Le Coudre, the Hazelwood. And this was attached to a large manor house, fortified manor house, Brackett's Castle, which is behind us on St Anne's Hill. Midhurst means middle wooded hill. And the Normans built a Mottam Bailey Castle here in the centre of all the Anglo-Saxon villages, basically to control not only the market, the revenues, but also control politically and militarily should it arise. And it's next to the River Rotha as well. So from there, they had a hunting lodge down here in the Hazelwood. Eventually, because of subsidence, the manor house Brackett's Castle on St Anne's Hill then suffered quite badly and they moved the building down here. So this one was a larger hunting lodge in stone and wood before the Tudors even came here. Mm. And from that foundation, probably the back range was then started. So that's the ground print of what we would know as the buck hall and the kitchen range. And then subsequent owners then extended out the courtyard. So now we've got this square courtyard and we're standing in front of this, what looks like a castle fortified gatehouse with oilets, these gun loops, large big window, double gates. And you would literally dismount here in front of the gates and then be taken in walking wise into the courtyard. But this is about the second, maybe even the third phase of this building. Wow, right. And, and I really wanted to talk about some, that, that owner of the house, the medieval hunting lodge, before Sir William Fitzwilliam got his hands on Cowdery. Because mm. I think that's such an interesting story. Sir Davy Owen, tell us about him and tell us how Fitzwilliam came to get hold of Cowdery. So we have to go back quite a long way into the medieval period. And we're talking about a man called Owen Tudor. And he was a Welsh courtier who eventually then marries Catherine de Valois, the widow of Henry V, and has a brood of children with her. But he has an illegitimate eighth child, which is Davy Owen. So Davy Owen then, when Henry Tudor, Davy Owen's nephew, arrived at Milford Haven, this is 1485, this is pre-Battle of Bosworth, Davy Owen then is knighted and is also one of the standard bearers to Henry Tudor at the Battle of Bosworth. Now, being the illegitimate uncle of Henry VII, he then is rewarded after Henry became king with a marriage. And it just so happened that down here in Midhurst, we had Mary Boone, who was the last of her family. She was an heiress, had all this land sitting around doing nothing. So the reward to Davy was that he marries this heiress and then subsequently looks at the hunting lodge and says, that's not befitting of someone who is related to the king. Let's do some modifications. And here we are. Oh, wow. And then but this, then this, this story that I came across of Fitzwilliam getting hold of Cowdery through Davy Owen's son? And, 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 and yeah, can you just explain that? Because it sounded like a bit of a, it seems a, a kind either, of a backhand deal yeah, going on here somewhere. It seems that either Davy or his son fell on hard times financially. And for whatever reason, the manor here was sold. The manor and the lands were sold. And William Fitzwilliam, now obviously being connected highly to Henry VIII, then benefited by buying all of this land. And then he then subsequently said, well, this is not befitting you know, the Earl of Southampton I need, and the best friend to Henry VIII. I now need to do some more building work. So he then did what I regard as being phase two here. 
Hmm. And then eventually that passes over to his half-brother, Anthony Brown, who then goes on to do phase three. Right. Now, when Fitzwilliam acquires this, what kind of data are we talking about? We are talking about that Henry Henry VIII period. So we are talking about that early to middle Tudor period, Mm. the sort of 1430s, that sort of area around there, maybe slightly bit earlier than that, I think. Mm. Um, And again, because of his relationship with Henry VIII, we know Henry VIII visited here on more than one occasion. This would be seen to be, it's off the beaten track in the sense that it's not near a big city or a big port, or there's nowhere militarily, but it's on the way too. So you can go from Hampton Court, you can stop off here, you can go down to Portsmouth, Southampton. You can go up to London and vice versa, coming back to the south coast. So places like this, where your best buddies are staying, that you can just drop in Mm. and do some hunting locally and just chill out and relax, this would be ideal for Henry. He's away from all the prying eyes of all the other big political intrigues. And of course, this building benefited from his dare I almost say patronage, by coming here, it boosts up William's prestige as well. Of course it does. And actually, thank you for mentioning the geography, because not everybody tuning in will know where Cowdery is. Mm. Um, Can you just give us a bit of a geography lesson, exactly? How far away are we from London? How far away are we from the south coast? Just so people can visualise. So if we were looking at a map of West Sussex, and if you imagine then at the bottom of your map is Chichester, And if you were looking at that map, if you then looked to the left, you've got Portsmouth, Southampton. If you were looking to the right of Chichester, you carry on, you've got Brighton, carry on further, you'd end up at Hastings. That's all the south coast. Mm. But if you leave Chichester and you go directly north, you'll get to Midhurst. So Midhurst really is not quite a halfway between here and London, but you're looking about nearly a third of the way to London. So it's around about 66 miles from London to Chichester we're looking around about 30 miles ish thereabouts so it's a good staging point and again Henry VIII we know was at Hampton Court and again that's out of the the Mm. London boroughs again it's in that sort of area as well so you're looking about maybe a day's ride maybe two days ride between some of these locations that he would go to yeah that's but again this is ideal from for being quite central it's northern Sussex so we're not too far from Hampshire we're not too far from Surrey We're right in that part of the Downs where hunting is absolutely fantastic. The road system, obviously, by the Tudor times was more like glorified tracks. So you're not looking at super highways like the M1 or anything like that. But you're looking at areas that are well-travelled, that there are good trade links by road and also then also by water as well. Mm. Because that's something that we don't often make a connection with. The Rother connects to the Arran. So if you can use the Arran as a staging point for transportation from the south coast to Arundel, from Arundel you can then link to other places as well. So there are all, all these networks of houses and, and courtiers and people that have got connections with the royal family, the Tudor royal family, are invaluable for the king and his entourage because he's not just going by himself, he could be up to you know, several hundred people with him. There is accommodation here for the king and then obviously the owner of the house would then move out to somewhere else, just up the road, the former benedictine priory up there which is also within the fitzwilliam and brown families so of course you can have accommodation over there accommodation here and put other people up in the town as well 
perfect. And I must say, for the modern day visitor, we've got the lovely little town of Midhurst, which is just adjacent Absolutely, to Cowdery House, yes. which has some gorgeous little old uh, buildings, doesn't it, in the in the old part of the the town centre. The nice thing about Midhurst is that standing wise, standing building wise, you have got medieval Tudor, Stuart, Georgian, Victorian and then the modern housing estates. So although largely people pass through Midhurst, and they might think of Midhurst in connection with the polo that happens during the summer, then Midhurst is a lovely country town in the heart of Sussex, rural location all the way around it. But yes, it itself is a fantastic place. And then right next to it, you have got the fantastic ruins here as well. Absolutely, so you do. So I'm turning to look at it again now. And can you just describe, as you've already talked about how this house was built in phases, what, what's the structure of the house? When it was finally completed, what were we looking at? So when you're looking at the front of the building, what you, you're supposed to be thinking of, that this is a castle. So you've got these half hexagonal towers in the centre of which is a very large double open gate above which is now a window and the coat of arms of the Brown family. So this is all about giving you the idea that this is a castle rather than a house that you're approaching. It's basically saying, don't mess with me. We know how to deal with people that are being antagonistic. So you have to have a licence to crenellate. So that's why, again, it's got that fortification type feel. You've got these large gun loops here called oilets. And was it Henry VIII who, who gave the licence to crenellate, or did that come slightly earlier? I believe it was Henry VIII, yes. I mm. think he was the one who ordered this to be crenellated, although it may have been done slightly earlier. I'd be surprised mm. if it was Henry VII. Mm. I always got the impression that it was Henry VIII. I mean, it's like the moving of the, the River Rother behind us. So there's a large causeway which leads down to the town of Midhurst, and you've got um, marshland either side of it. And then the River Rother, we know, was moved at some point. Well, the way I always describe it to visitors is what do castles need as an additional fortification is a moat. So by moving that river, it's almost like you are now passing mm. over the bridge, over the moat, coming up the causeway, sweeping up to this large castle-like building. You then dismount from your horse or come out your horse and carriage. You then led through the porch into the courtyard itself. So it is a... Uh, squared building, central courtyard is open, got this beautiful sandstone, which again, when it was first built, would have been almost gleaming white, like a shimmery white. It's now faded over time, so it's these patches of greys mm. and yellows and browns, slightly moss-covered. But you can imagine when it was first built, it would really stand out. And of course, anyone building out a stone, you are saying, we can afford it. We are the, the important people. But because it's now a ruin, it gives us an opportunity to look inside the walls and there is all the brick. So all that brick that we can now see exposed on the left-hand side of the gatehouse, that would have all been covered. Mm. Covered up not only with sandstone, but also then being covered up with uh, plaster on the inside or wooden panels. So the builders and the owners know that a huge amount of brick was being used in the construction but we now have the insight because it's now a ruin mm. to see how it was constructed and that's a huge amount of building materials that have gone into this and the big windows as well you know the more glass you've got the bigger the windows you've got it's all about showing off it's mm. all about prestige do we have any idea how much it cost yeah the from a cost point of view i've never seen anything written down specifically regarding the cost because i think that documentation might very well have been lost in the fire, the later fire, but also because this was one of several properties that the owners would have had. So the owner is not going to be based here every single day. They would visit here 
when they weren't visiting the king and the king might be in several different locations around the country mm. and that was the idea that you take your best friends and also you know he was lord admiral as well so he had specific responsibilities that might take him down to wherever the the ships the fleet would be based so on that sort of basis that documentation would have been held in different locations and for whatever reason as i said i've never seen anything specific i've heard i've seen speculations but nothing specific yeah. okay well you talked about guests arriving down the causeway and sweeping up to the gatehouse and dismounting and then going inside i think that's what we should do i know we can't go through the gatehouse because as you pointed to earlier there's a lot of crumbling masonry isn't there and you're doing a lot of renovation work and so you can't get too close but we can go around and get into the courtyard and pick up the visitor's journey and maybe then we can talk about some of the features that we can see inside let's go you've been listening to the first part of this month's episode of the tudor history and travel show the remainder of this episode is available to patrons only. To become a patron of the show, head over to my Podbean homepage and you can find the Become a Patron button in the top right-hand corner. Alternatively, you can find a direct link to Become a Patron in the text associated with this podcast. And finally, just before I go, a quick reminder to say if you are interested in booking your place on this year's virtual summit, 500 Years of Anne Boleyn, It Girl, Icon, Legend, then make sure that you hop on over to my blog, Guide, and subscribe to my mailing list. I will be sending out a notification as soon as the doors open. Thank you for tuning in to this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe, like and rate this podcast so we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, it's happy time travelling. <laughs>